Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. I invite you now to open up your Bibles, uh, to turn to Judges chapter 21. Um, You'll find that on page 469, or no, 409, that's bad writing. Um, And then uh, you can also turn to Luke chapter 19, which is on page 1,631 uh, this week. We're looking at particularly that last verse in Judges. We'll, we'll read some extra parts for context, um, but we're looking at this line that's in there, which notes that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And if you were here last week, that should have us thinking back to Samson, who did what was right in his own eyes. We find the, the exact same words to describe Samson are repeated again here. What was said in chapter 14, they come up again in chapter 17, where the people do what is right in their own eyes, and then it comes again in chapter 21. So there's this repetition that makes us pay attention. And the fact that it's at the very end here, we're getting a sense that this is a summary statement of the whole book. Um, We'll remember this image. I've brought it up, I think, every time. Um, that the, the book of Judges can be seen as a spiral. Things are spiraling out of control and they get worse and worse as they go while well, we are finally at the very end. This is as bad as it gets. And we're also going to be reading from Luke chapter 19 as it's Palm Sunday and this is where we remember Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, uh, particularly paying attention to the shouts of the people welcoming in the king. The name or the title for this message is The Need for a King. And before uh, reading, let's turn to God in prayer. Eternal God, whose word silences the shouts of the mighty, quiet within us every voice but your own. Speak to us now and during the week through the suffering and death of Jesus that by the power of your Holy Spirit we may receive the grace to show Christ's love to those around us. Amen. Judges chapter 21, verse 20. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and then go to the land of Benjamin. And when the fathers or brothers come and complain to us, we'll say to them, Grant them graciously to us because... We did not take each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to um, give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance. 
and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what is right in his own eyes. Now turning to Luke chapter 19. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, the people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near to the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the most important questions that we can ask ourselves in our culture for today is, what do you want? It's kind of that, that, that pivotal question of our day, and it, it shows up in different places at different times. I know when you're younger, you get that in the form of, what do you want to be when you grow up? And in that, you get that sense of, who they admire, what they think of themselves, what they desire and want to be. That, that question gets a little more nerve-wracking when it comes time to graduation, whether it's from high school or college, where people ask, what do you want to do next year? Where do you want to go? And really, that question of wanting never really leaves us. Whether it's pursuing a new step in your career, a new chapter in your home life, or a new phase in retirement, all of us are given an invitation by our culture to consider this question, what is it that we want? This question is so important that it has become almost a must. We have to do these things. We need to be able to do what is right in our own eyes, or we will not be okay in the world. We won't be able to think well of ourselves. We won't be able to be validated or have meaning unless we are able to act on our desires. We live in a culture where to stifle our desires 
is seen almost as this ultimate sin. It's considered wrong to do something just because someone else wants you to do it. You need to have your own desire for it. And while there's many different examples that we could go to to see this, uh, I'll go to the movie Frozen. That's supposed to be Elsa. Um, She doesn't look that scary in the actual movie. Um, She's most popular for singing a song, Let It Go, um, a song about letting go of all the expectations of those around you. In one of the verses, she says this, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And then she says, let it go, let it go. The famous words that we we know from there. The song, when she gets to that point in there, she's going beyond, there's a bigger story, of course. There's this kind of oppression from her family and she needs to break free from that. But as she is living into that, she goes well beyond that part of the story. And now morality is thrown out the window. She gets to decide what is right for her. No right, no wrong. This is where freedom is. And that's, that's the message that's being portrayed for the people watching. And we get this, this message repeated to us subtly over and over again, whether it's in movies or TV shows or podcasts, whatever we're consuming. Our culture sends these messages. We need to break free and to be our own selves. We need to live to what is right in our own eyes, to put it in the language of our passage today. So looking at our passage... It gives us that line, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And looking at our culture, we we probably understand this a little better, or at least we feel it more than the generations that came before us. This isn't just found in children's movie songs, but it runs deeper in our culture I'll name just one example here, and that is uh, in our cultural sexual ethics, or our ethics as a whole, there is a sense that right and wrong is determined by consent, by our choosing of whether that is right or wrong for me. And just to be clear, from, from a Christian perspective, the absence of consent can definitely make something morally wrong, but the presence of consent doesn't immediately make something right. There's there's another foundation that we turn to for truth. But in our culture, this presence of consent appears to be the the sole basis for our moral decisions. We, we, We have that sense, looking back to our passage, if it's right in our own eyes, then it must be right. You must do what is right in your own eyes. Or maybe you won't be okay in the world. You won't feel validated. You won't feel that sense of meaning. What do you want, in other words, that that first question we opened with, isn't simply a question of desire. 
This is a question of our morality. It's a question of what is right and wrong. And just thinking about that, I, there, there's two reflections that I want us to consider. First has to do with how do we talk to non-Christians? When, when we talk about people and their devotion to their work, their sexual expressions, their athletic performance, whatever it is that's consuming people's desires, we might think that we're talking about just one facet of their lives, just one thing. But really, this could be tapping at something much deeper to them. When you talk about this, it might feel like you're attacking the very thing that makes them them. The one thing that makes them feel okay in the world. And this should impact perhaps the tone in which we engage in these conversations with people both inside and outside the church. We might ask ourselves in this first sense of how do we speak God's truth in our context in the midst of today. But second, and I think more importantly, in this place of competing wants and desires where, where we're told where we should focus only on ourselves, it heightens this importance to instruct ourselves and our children in forming our desires. We need to model a devotional life that's rooted in God's word so that for ourselves and for our children, for our brothers and sisters in Christ around us, we can see the fruitfulness that comes from aligning ourselves, not around our wants, but around God's good word. We spend time open to the Spirit's movement in our lives. We respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit in the day-to-day. And we do this recognizing that we are marinating in this culture that pushes us to focus in on ourselves. And we form ourselves against that in our devotional times, putting ourselves before God and practicing submission before him. After all, that's, that's what our passage is about today. Looking at the days of judges, there was a time where they were determining their own morality, each person going back to their own homes and doing what was right in their own eyes. Looking at these last two verses here, we might, we might picture this in our culture, or at least our culture reading those two verses alone, that this is the happiest story in the Bible, that this must be concluding and summarizing the best time. This is, fine. this is the vision that Elsa was dreaming about and singing about in her song. No right, no wrong, no rules. This is freedom. But when we read Judges, we see the context that this comes in. It is the opposite of that, the opposite of heaven. This is not the restoration of Eden. This is hellish. This is a taste of disorder so bad that it seems like God is completely absent from Judges 17, we get a picture of things unraveling to the extent that a lot of people don't know what to do with these stories. If you've read Judges 17 through 21, what do you do with it? There's stories in here 
that explain what it actually looked like in the rest of the book of Judges. So throughout Judges, we get this repeated phrase that the people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we think, okay, well, maybe they were worshiping in the wrong places or maybe they were saying bad words or something like that, but they probably didn't deserve that much judgment. And it never really goes into details what Israel was doing. What did that evil look like? Well, here we get a little bit of a snapshot of that. We get a glimpse. And it's, it's, not, it's not great. Uh, I remember a friend of mine, when they were asked if they could take out a story of the Bible, any story, the one that popped to their mind immediately was from Judges 19. And it's a story of a Levite and a concubine. I'm tempted to gloss over it to give kind of a, a nicer version of it, but I'll hit some of the, the details here. The Bible reports that she is raped to death, and then a Levite cuts her into 12 pieces and has her sent to each corner of Israel as a sign of judgment. It is a terrible story. That's that kind of hellish environment, the sense that where is God in the midst of this? And the problem, or one of the problems in that story is, is that's still chapter 19. It actually manages to get worse. It's a prelude of what is to come. Israel, based off of that, goes to war against its own tribe to avenge this crime They kill thousands of Israelite women. And then seeing that there's no women for the men, they kill the men of a neighboring non-Israelite town and take the daughters to be wives. And clearly don't ask about that. Um, It's clear in the text. And that even on itself isn't enough. So then they sponsor another event. All of Israel sponsors this, gives permission for it, the abduction and rape of girls in a festival in a town nearby. And that's where the book ends. That's where it finishes. Far from utopia, far from Eden reclaimed, it is this hellish cycle. This is the bottom of that downward spiral. One where attempts to solve the violence and the brokenness does not fix the problems, but multiplies it a thousand times over again. Uh, Earlier in our series in Judges, I noted that that Romans would be a a good companion to read alongside this because it gives kind of this sense, theological language of what sin is. Well, here, especially in chapters 17 through 21, we see it. We see the messiness of sin. In looking at how to respond to these stories, I found some good advice from a pastor in New York named Tim Keller. He says that when we read chapters 17 through 21, our first response ought to be lament, to mourn the brokenness of sin. And we don't simply lament the brokenness that we see in them but we lament the things are done by the people of God and that we see aspects of us, our own brokenness, when we read that story. This isn't just about some random people. This is about God's people. It shines a light on the way that how our sin comes in, how it breaks things apart. 
Keller writes this, that we have all told ourselves and others a better story about ourselves and our conduct than what the whole truth would reveal. Like, we, we do that. We do that naturally. We don't, we don't think about that most of the time, telling ourselves. We convince ourselves over time that we're a little better than we actually are. We like to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We leave out the whole truth of how we may have done something to hurt that person before they hurt us. We heap the blame elsewhere rather than seeing it in ourselves. We convince ourselves that we're pretty good on our own, that we don't need God. And Judges, the book, is reminding that we're only fooling ourselves. That's, that's the point of Judges. That's its whole purpose. It's meant to be this mirror that we hold up to ourselves and we see ourselves reflected back when we see the stories. Judges isn't a history textbook. It's not, it's not because they saw that they had an ending for Joshua and we needed an explanation for the kings that were to come, so they just put in some history. It's not a story of filled with like kind of the Wild West where there's all these exciting rogue stories to tell. It's not just there to entertain. There is a direct point in the book of Judges. Judges is making this point that we are helpless without God. We mess things up as bad as any other people. We cannot save ourselves. In order to read Judges properly, we need to see that we are a messy people in need of a merciful God. That's, that's the whole point of our series. Judges holds that mirror and shows us the inadequacy of human nature. It, we, we need more than Othniel and Ehud and Gideon and Samson. We need more than people that can give temporary rescue. We need a permanent king. And that's the tragedy that we find at the end of Judges. It finishes with the line, In those days there was no king in Israel. You know what that first line means? It means that they had abandoned God as their king. It means that God, God was meant to be this one who had the crown. He was the one wearing the crown for Israel, but they had abandoned him. His law was no longer being consulted. God ceases to be king here, and we only get the shadow of a crown. And it leads the people into chaos. The punishment at the end of Judges is so much worse than the ones that we find in each cycle. Earlier, we have just other nations oppressing them and God coming to save them. But the punishment at the end is the experience of the absence of God. The king has withdrawn from his people, leaving them to their own devices. The stories ought to leave us aching for God to come back as king. Someone that can reorder these disordered desires to bring this chaos back into some flourishing. 
Now, if you keep reading the story, if you go beyond Judges and we look at 1 and 2 Samuel and Kings, you'll notice that more kings come their way, but it doesn't return to this. These human kings are just shadows of the true king. They never bring Israel fully out of the curse of sin. They are left longing for one who is able to undo this all. And we need to read Luke chapter 19 remembering that. This is hundreds and hundreds of years of waiting for the king to come back. And notice what the people are chanting as Jesus comes in. They are chanting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They are longing for someone who will come and do more than what any earthly king can do. This is the one that will be able to invite them in to live into the world as it was meant to be. These people get it. They get that they are helpless and they need a king. But what they don't see is how deep this deliverer is going to go, how deep the salvation is that he will offer. He deals with their sins and their hearts and the people themselves. He gives them a new place to put their desires. These people, as they are shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, They didn't know what this king would actually look like. They didn't know that as they cheered him in, that being king would mean that he would be betrayed by those closest to him. That involved taking his own cross on his shoulders, the brutal treatment from soldiers who whipped him, spat on him, that he would be torn down emotionally, physically, spiritually. They didn't see that on Palm Sunday. But we see that. We know that that suffering is to come. And they didn't know that that is what it looks like when God comes in and establishes his rule. God doesn't crush everybody with Herculean strength. He's not another Samson that comes in. He doesn't rally the troops and defeat the opposition. This is a king of which they had never seen the likes of before. One who, in an act of love, dies for all those around him. The path towards the cross in this next week will guide us to Good Friday, a day that we will have to consider how terrible the suffering was, but also how that led towards victory, how Jesus rose from the dead, And in this, there is this true affirmation of life. We serve a king who is alive, as we've repeated in God's greeting every morning throughout the series in Lent, that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. We serve one who is alive and who is the king of all kings. We are a people who see our need for this king, a king who doesn't just rescue us from our temporary issues but gives the ultimate deliverance from sin. 
We need this king who recenters us, who frees us from the chaos of having to follow our own desires, of needing to do what is right only in our own eyes. I remember Frozen, or Elsa, the idea that our culture is defined by our wants, where right and wrong are obliterated. They're, they're set aside for our own desires. What if our response to that was rooted in a passage where we have a new person that we can claim as king? That we have a king who sets us free from being slaves to our own desire, who has paid for our sins so that we can be okay in the world, that we don't need to vindicate ourselves so that we can feel good about ourselves, but it stems from this king who has set us free from all of that. We have a king who loves us freely and invites us into relationship with him. From our rootedness in Christ, we're invited to be like him, where we no longer are defined by fulfilling our desires. We no longer are defined by what we want and what we pursue, but we are ultimately and fundamentally people who offer ourselves in love for the other. This is a truly countercultural way of being in the world today, in a world that defines primarily by our own wants. And I think this shows up strongly in 1 John 3, verses 16 and 18, where it says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. This, what John is talking about here, this imitation of Christ, laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters, is certainly something that is not centered around our own wants, our own desires, but joyfully following the king in love. We demonstrate our love for others in the same way. We lay down our lives for others, sharing with those in need. In drawing closer to his love, we are transformed to be people defined not by what we consume, not by filling ourselves and satisfying our own desires, but in offering ourselves for others. So as we enter into this week, I have kind of two challenges here. Whether you're doing resurrection eggs or you're doing something else to prepare yourself for the cross and for our Easter celebration... I want us to be considering what Jesus' steps to the cross mean for you. How can we saturate ourselves in remembering Christ's self-giving love for us? Remembering that for each one of us, this is the paying for our sins. This is giving us eternal life. 
So first, how can we saturate ourselves in remembering Christ's self-giving love? And then following from that, what little ways can we be practicing self-giving love for others? What, what day-to-day things can you be going, doing to, to practice this self-giving love and growing into the likeness of Christ? Reflecting on those throughout the week, I invite you to turn to God in prayer. Dear Lord, for a time, all of creation waited for the true king to come and rule. And now we have the privilege of being a people who can live under your lordship. Yet we still resist your rule. We don't see the ways which, being, which you being king blesses us. We decide and look to ourselves in thinking that doing what is right in our own eyes is best for us. Give us resistance to these thoughts. Give us repentant hearts when we see our self-seeking inclinations and how they show up in the things that we do. Form us that we may imitate you in action and in truth. In the midst of the chaos that surrounds us, may we see our need for you, the true king. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.